So if we are not able to agree on loss and damage, then I think this COP will not be a successful COP. We are the least responsible for the climate crisis. So that means that the global north, they do owe us climate reparations. Anything less than establishing a loss and damage fund at this COP is a betrayal. You're listening to The Lid Is On. I'm Connor Lennon. And I'm Laura Quinones. On today's show, the Secretary General, he's back in town. He's been holding bilateral meetings and using his high-level skills to try to convince countries to come to some kind of agreement before this COP ends. But it seems the positions are still very far apart. And not only the Secretary General spoke today, but also activists. They made their frustrations clear today at a special people's plenary session, and representatives of vulnerable nations continue to push for a fund that will compensate them for the damage caused by the climate crisis. That's the, uh, yes, the famous loss and damage we keep hearing about. And it's the last thematic day, Solutions Day, which always gives us, well, me anyway, a bit of a ray of hope, showing us that the technology needed to bring about a clean energy future is already in our grasp. But let's get back to the big boss, our big boss, the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres. He had a press stakeout not too long ago. He didn't seem too impressed by the state of negotiations. Yes, so Antonio Guterres told negotiators to work specifically on the three areas that are like the most divided on this COP27, which are loss and damage, uh, emissions gap for the 1.5 ceiling, and the 100 billion climate finance so that countries that are affected by climate change can get these clauses uh, which can help their debt. And we believe we'll be here again tomorrow, in theory the last day of COP27, but we're not expecting to be packing our bags tomorrow just yet. No, everything looks like uh, like negotiations are going to spill over after Friday. Um, the president, until yesterday, he kept saying that they will be on time. They will have a cover decision for Friday night. But many experts and negotiators that have done this for the past 27 years or, or a little less maybe, uh, they have all said that this looks like a long one. Yeah, this um, cover text so far is still in bullet point, or at least it was earlier today. What do we know? Well, we know that the 1.5 target is in there. And also the Glasgow coal phase down is in there. That's a reiteration of the pledge from last year. And wealthy countries are being encouraged to increase support for climate finance. And also the loss and damage agenda. Well, there's there's a mention because there has to be a mention. But so far, we don't have any more detail on on what that's actually going to mean in terms of any kind of commitment. It only mentions the agenda item. It welcomes that there was an agenda item this year on loss and damage, but it doesn't actually say or call for the um, for the creation of a new financial facility specifically for loss and damage. And that's not good enough for many people here. Nope. It's a real sticking point. And, of course, it was major progress to get it on the agenda. But, yes, will a fund be established? How is it going to be established? When will it be established? All of these questions are still up in the air. We were listening into the Climate Action Network, which was holding its daily press conference today. Nabil Munir, the ambassador of Pakistan to South Korea, also the coordinator for G77 plus China negotiations, he spoke at the press conference, and, and this is obviously very close to home for him because, as we all remember, Pakistan was hit with devastating floods earlier this year. He said the G77 plus China group has put a proposal for a fund on the table. And he says the details can be ironed out down the road, but what they want is for this fund to be created at this COP. 
And the fund shouldn't be seen as charity, he said. It's also about climate justice. What we are asking for is not dole outs. What we are asking for that countries like Pakistan, and you all know what happened in Pakistan a couple of months ago, a third of our country was underwater. 33 million people were impacted. So it's, it's, uh, it's something that uh, is, comes out naturally that countries like Pakistan, 0.1, less than 0.1% of the GAG emissions, if they are impacted, they have to be compensated in some way. And what we are talking about is burden sharing, nothing more than that. And for this COP, all we are asking is a clear political decision to establish a, a, a fund. We are not saying, we know it will take time to actually operationalize it. We know that it will take time to have money into it. But what, all we want is a political signal, all and nothing more than that. But even if that is not acceptable, then we think that uh, this, this is the only uh, decision that is actually of, of matter, that is actually uh, something that we all have, have been asking for for 30 years. And if we can't even get a political signal 30 years later, then what are we all doing? So if we are not able to agree on loss and damage, then I think this COP will not be a successful COP. So for the G77 plus China group, according to Ambassador Munir, they will consider this to be a failed COP if there isn't that commitment to a fund. Sticking with loss and damage, there was another press conference today, a rather impromptu press conference. A range of organisations representing developing countries were involved, and it amounted really to a chorus of concern at what they describe as inaction surrounding the loss and damage issue. Uh, you remember AOSIS, the Alliance of Small Island States. Remember Ruana Haynes, who yeah, we, we've heard from a couple of times, who's deep in negotiations. She mentioned Sir Mulwyn Joseph. He is the chairperson of AOSIS. He's from Antigua and Barbuda. Of course, small island developing states are on the front line of climate change. They're some of the most vulnerable countries in the world. We mentioned this yesterday. AOSIS has been trying since 1991 to get loss and damage on the table. Were you even born in 1991? Mm, barely, barely walking. Been a very long time. <laughs> He said that inaction on a loss and damage fund amounts to a betrayal of island people. When we left Glasgow, we left with hope. And we felt that we could build on Glasgow. And one of the building blocks was to establish a loss and damage fund. We are in an environment where we have to consider our homes, our lives, our children our future on this earth. This is what is at stake. And the matter is an urgent matter and doesn't allow for any equivocation or delay. It is political as well as it's personal. It is an attack on our life, our dignity as a people. The establishment of a loss and damage fund should not be that difficult. Anything less than establishing a loss and damage fund on, at this COP is a betrayal of the people who are working so hard to clean up this environment and the people who are fighting for humanity. Why should I be pushed to go to the United Nations to stand up, to ask for charity, ask for people to come and give donations. 
That cannot be an acceptable expectation of any small island developing state at this time. Samolwin Joseph, the chairperson of AOSIS, the Alliance of Small Island States. And today we had the People's Plenary, which I remember distinctly from last year as being a, a very colourful occasion. How was it this year? Uh, well, it was equally as colourful, if not more. Um, there was a lot of like uh, a strong speeches from different activists, uh, representatives of NGOs, civil society. Um, he actually started with the with the blessing of the indigenous communities, a very, very strong and powerful sound by this group from Brazil. And all these speeches called for more action, uh, for loss and damage, uh, for participation of the civil society in the negotiations, and for keeping 1.5 alive. After they finished this meeting in which they heard each other and they were supporting each other in a, in a great way, like it was like a protest inside a plenary. So they, after that, they walked out of the plenary, protesting and doing their chants. And at the end, they sat down and they read this. It's called the People's Declaration, the People's of COP27 Declaration, uh, where they are asking negotiators to act on this on these um, issues that I mentioned before, specifically loss and damage. <laughs> After the sit-down, I spoke to indigenous Namibian climate justice activist Ina Maria Chicongo, and she described the devastating impact that the climate crisis is having on her people. My communities are already being impacted by an ongoing drought for the past decade. My Ovahimba people have not seen any rain for the past 10 years. Their livelihoods are being impacted already. Namibia is one of the driest countries in sub-Saharan Africa, in southern Africa to be specific. And yet, we are still debating about loss and damages. Our governments keep on borrowing funds just to be able to support communities when we are the least responsible for the climate crisis. Namibia is a carbon sink. So that means that the global north, they do owe us climate reparations. The climate crisis is already impacting the global north. This what you can see here is the future of the global north. People are complaining about food here. They're complaining about water being scarce. But that is your future, which is our present, where we come from. The fossil fuels have to stay in the ground. If we are talking about just transition, then let's do it. And that means holding the polluters accountable. Fossil fuels, they have to pay for loss and damage. They have to be held accountable. 
that was Namibian climate justice activist Ina Maria Shikongo of the Ovahimba people. Uh, she's currently trying to stop Recon Africa, a Canadian oil company, from attempting to frack in the region of the country. Well, after all that, why don't we try and end today with a ray of hope? I there are some out there, it, aren't yeah. there? Yeah, we all need it. Well, today was Solutions Day, and it's a reminder that the technology is there. It just has to be put in place or implemented, you could say, at this yep. COP of implementation. I caught up again with explorer Bertrand Picard, another friend of the podcast. <laughs> he set up a foundation after founding and leading the first ever project to successfully fly a solar-powered plane around the world. Today, he was promoting the thousand-plus technology solutions that the foundation's identified so far, each one tailored to the specific situation in different countries. He told me that, as well as being a powerful tool in the fight against the climate crisis, the solutions are potentially very profitable. So, why aren't countries rushing to buy them? There is a lot of laziness, a lot of reluctancy to, to change. People are in their comfort zone and they think it's difficult to do something else. And sometimes I agree that it's a bit difficult because of the uh, legislative and regulatory framework that is in complete contradiction with something new. Uh, we have a legal framework that is adapted to the technologies we're using 50 years ago, and there are still a uh, legal framework that is uh, active today. Instead of having a framework that is pushing new solutions to be used. You know, since the beginning of the industrial age, there is smoke going out of the chimney of the factories. But it's not only smoke. It's also heat, which means energy, which means dollars. It's money going through the chimney. So there is a startup that is recovering this heat in order to give it back to the factory. It's not only less pollution, it's not only less CO2, but it's a 20 to 40 percent reduction in the energy bill of the factory. But there is no incentive to do that. People don't even know you can do it. You have other systems which are public lighting that allow to be off the grid with solar cells, batteries, LED lamp. It's a 37% reduction in the electricity, electricity bill of a city. But today there are some uh, rules, some regulations that keep this very, very low in the public procurement because it's too innovative. So what we ask is to break the ceiling of the quota for innovation in order to protect the environment much better when these innovations protect the environment. And you know, about everything is like this. Today, you can solve the problems of the CO2 of the construction of buildings, of living in the buildings. You can solve the problem of the waste by using the waste to do something else, recycling the waste. You can purify and recycle water. You can be efficient in energy, so renewable energies would be enough. You have electric mobility. You have everything except the systemic approach where all the administrations work together to make it happen. It's really important that people vote, uh, people get engaged in the process. And you've launched a project in France. Yes. Yes. It's called Prêt à voter, ready to vote. And it is about 50 recommendations that we are giving to the new parliamentarians of the National Assembly in order to allow new solutions to spread on the market. Because regulation should be understood as something that allows 
the new technologies to, to spread and not only interdictions and prohibition. And regulation is not just when you ban something. Sometimes it is just the frame in which something can, can grow. So we are trying to raise and get rid of the obstacles that are preventing 50 very, very high leverage uh, solutions to be implemented. You must be enthused by the number of young people running startups who are refusing to, to give up on this. Yes, but not just to see startups arriving with solutions, but also to help them to bring their solutions on the market. Because what happens usually with the startups? They are pushed with subsidies, incubators, grants, pitches, and then they arrive at this where they could sell, but nobody buys. So what I try to do, instead of just pushing the, the innovation, is to pull the innovation to the market. And pulling the innovation to the market means a legal framework that really encourages to create a need for these new startups to, to, to bring their products. And as long as the standards and the norms allow to pollute, allow to be inefficient, we're not going to help these startups. But if the norms and the standards are, make, are coming much tougher in terms of ecological uh, goal, then the need will pull all these innovations. And like this, you will create more jobs, you will have new companies growing, and uh, you'll make more money. And at the same time, you'll protect the environment. And this is really important. That was Bertrand Picard urging us to change our mindsets and turn to some of the exciting technological solutions that are out there right now, which could bring down emissions and hasten the transition to a green global economy. Now, buildings and cities are a huge source of greenhouse gas emissions, but also increasingly architects and urban planners are redesigning them. Tia Kansara, CEO of environmental advisory firm Replenish Earth, was here earlier this week and I caught up with her. She told me that there are many examples of architects redesigning the built environment to bring down emissions and she believes that it is possible with the use of leapfrogging technologies to allow developing countries to bypass the old fossil fuel based technology that has so far powered the industrial world. There are places in India, I remember um, some incredible solar technology projects that brought in renewable technologies, the first form of lighting. Perhaps in the future, there'll be other technologies that we can bring into environments that are growing at the scales that they are. I think it's a challenge of moonshots, right? This future class uh, forecasting and, and knowing what those scenarios are and the ability to pivot. So where is it that we balance this steady mindset of this is the way that it's always been with the growth mindset, which is, oh, I didn't know that was possible. It's the reality that's limited by imagination that I feel is a real challenge here. No one's saying that we have to all go to a jungle and, and live in nature off the land, but there, there are values like living in harmony with nature that we can still implement in our lives. Tia Kansara of environmental advisory firm Replenish Earth. And that's it for us today, but there is some exciting news that we have, isn't there? We have got a great new series coming out next week. It's called Amplify Her. Yet again, the voice of Lara is all over it. <laughs> and it's going to be great. I, 
I'm really excited about this. I got to speak to some of the musicians involved. It's basically all about women musicians from around the world. We get to hear some of their music and find out about their, their highs, their lows in the industry. And it gave me a sense of the huge wealth of talent that's out there. And I'm really looking forward to it. And it launches on the 24th of November, next Thursday. Here is a little taste. you grow older you're just gonna be like I do not care (laughs) I don't care at all what you think if there's no shows because there's no venue then you have to go away to perform and it's not easy you know I said there's no way I'm chopping my hair off because you want me to I didn't do it And then they ended up wanting me because it's like, this bitch is a badass, you know? Around the world, women are producing incredible art, overcoming challenges such as human rights abuses, climate change, inequality, or discrimination. I'm Laura Quiñones, the host of Amplify Her, a new podcast from the United Nations, which is committed to empowering women and protecting their rights. In this 10-part series, you'll be hearing inspiring musicians from a wide range of backgrounds talking about their challenges in a male-dominated industry, how they overcome barriers, and what drives them to continue creating art. We'll hear some amazing music from Amel, best known as the voice of the Tunisian Revolution. Alena Murang, a young artist who is keeping traditional music alive in Borneo. And Fausia, who is embracing her Moroccan roots. We are excited to share these stories and sounds with you, so get ready to subscribe, turn off the volume, and amplify her. That was the voice of Lara introducing some of the huge talents that are going to be in Amplify Her, brand new podcast from the United Nations, which will be launching next Thursday. Like and subscribe. It's all ready to go. Have you subscribed yet? You should. You're in it. I'm going to do it right now. Good. (laughs) As ever, Lara has to run away because you've got... A newsletter to write from scratch. Don't worry, just a couple more to go. Well, are you going to wait for me? Do I have to? It's so. Oh, okay, I'll wait for you. All right, as usual, I'll wait for Lara so we can get a cab and get out of here late at night. <laughs> of course, everyone else has already gone home. See you tomorrow.